Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, I have the great honor of welcoming Christine Hargrove to the show. She is a new friend and colleague, but one that has formed a fast friendship with. She's a student, PhD student nonetheless, at the University of Georgia, and she's got quite the special research interest. So, Christine, welcome to the show, and why don't you tell listeners a little bit about what you're up to these days? Thank you so much for having me. I work in a, in a really unique area called uh, about ADHD, uh, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. couple relationships, relationships in general. Um, right. I tend to focus more on couple relationships in my research at least, uh-huh. and our relationships with money. So when I talk about my triangle, I talk about ADHD and couples and money. So our relational well-being and our financial well-being and how that interacts um, when we have neurodiversity either in the family or within ourselves. What a beautiful, simple explanation. I'm sure you could give us like some really cool academic complex explanation of all of it, but that just (laughs) makes it feel so approachable. It's these three areas, ADHD, couples, and money, and you put them in a triangle. Mm -hmm. And I think what's implied in that is that they're interrelated with each other. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can see, um, you can sort of see pockets of it in different clinical focus literature and an outreach of like how ADHD can affect couples, right? Yeah. There's a little bit of research about how living with ADHD can affect your financial well-being. There's also some research about how couples and money, right? And I know you know this, right? So there's research as well as like clinical literature. I love it. I love it. Um, But then like the the addition of the third part of the triangle of, uh, and my my area really focuses on ADHD, but, you know, functionally it's broader to to all forms of neurodiversity, right? Because of the high rate of comorbidities. Uh Um, But that... That puts a really interesting spin on how do you think about your relational well-being and your financial well-being, both in terms of evaluating it and understanding it, and then what to do about it when you have a situation where you're trying to navigate systems that maybe aren't set up in a way that's conducive to your best outcomes. Right. And you know, something we talk about in in the ADHD circles that I run in is there's this consistent inconsistency. And most of our understandings of how to do couple relationships well and how to handle money well assumes that we're going to be consistent. Um, And that if we're not consistent, it's just because we don't understand. And that's really not what ADHD is. It's not a problem of not knowing what to do. It's a problem of consistently doing what you know. Oh, 
I like that. That's really helpful. Can you say that phrase again? ADHD. Is- uh, this is uh, so Russell Barkley. ADHD is a, not a problem of knowing what to do. It's a problem of doing what you know. Okay. And so let's drill down into a little bit of what's going on there. What's making it challenging to implement consistently what you know you, you need to do? Or I'm air quoting should to do because that, that always gets to be a slippery slope. But actually, you know what? I want to hit the pause. Let's come back to that. How did you get to this area of particular interest? Because I find that when I talk to academics and researchers and people that are super specialists, they usually have some of their own journey that's connected to why they're doing the work they're doing. So um, would you care to share a little bit of your own story up to getting up to this point? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So like a lot of people who are interested in ADHD, I kind of fell into it because of life situations. And uh, so really, it was after, let's see, I think I'd had, I had my oldest was in like kindergarten or first grade. And we were really having a lot of difficulties. Um, She was She's brilliant, absolutely brilliant, but was really struggling in school. And so um, this is a, I mean, it, it feels like a typical story now because I sort of hang out in a lot of these circles. But at that time, it didn't feel typical. It felt very, um, very unknown, very confusing. I'm trying to figure out what was going on with her. And, and of course, you know, I, the way that we were looking at it was, well, she can't have ADHD. She's just like me and I'm normal. So she must be normal. So we must need to like parent more effectively or something's going uh, on. You know, we were kind of looking for all these external things. Sure. Eventually, um, you know, we went through, uh, we went through a long, you know, monitoring and evaluation process, but it turned out she does have ADHD and we started the medication journey and that's gone really well. And then she's not the only one of our kids, um, half do and half don't, um, okay. have it. And, and, so in walking with them and, and learning as much as I could about ADHD and living with ADHD, I was actually more concerned, even though there, there are a lot of risks associated with ADHD, particularly untreated ADHD, um, like some health risks and, you know, threats to safety. Sure. Um, I was more concerned about the emotional experience of living with ADHD. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I'll, t- I'll tell you something personal, but I feel like being transparent is really fair. I remember I was I was working so hard to help her. I was kind of trying to be her second brain. Um, this was before we realized that she had ADHD. Sure. And sure. and I had talked with her teachers, and um, you know, I'd gotten a lot of advice from people about how we just needed to be stricter, uh, more consistent. Um, it felt really rigid to me, but, sure. but I was really doing the best that I could. Um, and I remember one night before bed, she was upset and she said, mom, do you even like me? Mm, 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 mm-hmm. And I remember I got really, I actually got really upset and frustrated at the same time because, you know, I, I felt yeah. everything just felt like a, a jumble, um, but I really sat back and was like, I'm, I'm not doing this. This mm-hmm. is not how we're going to parent anymore. I don't care who, you know, who says that this is the best way or this is the, 
Uh, yeah. I don't know, right way. I just decided that I I wasn't going to parent like that. We weren't going to have a home like that. It, it didn't feel good anyway. Yeah. And that started, that was really like the turning point in where I, we started sort of opening up to what else could be going on. What are our other resources? Um, mm -hmm. What are we missing? What do, Who do we need to be? Because I'm not raising children who think that I don't like them, even though they know they're loved, they don't feel liked. That doesn't work for me. That's an important, um, both of those features are important, aren't they? In childhood development, feeling loved and liked. It's not one or the other, it's both. Mm -hmm. It's really important. I just want to name that. So, wow, this is cool. Thank you for sharing a little bit of your family story. Yeah, happy to. So that was that was the real turning point. Um, got a diagnosis, started to understand what was going on, decided we were going to loop in as many resources as possible, and really saw a huge change in how the family felt, um, how supported she felt. Um, but in that process of like, okay, if this is what's going on, I want to know everything I can. I want to understand so that I can navigate this better with her. I learned so much about what is being done with ADHD, what, what there is yet to do, wow. and got um, became really passionate about wanting to be part of being uh, part of, not the solution, because I actually think that you know everybody sort of finds their own solution, but I want to be part of providing resources um, uh -huh. to families, to couples, to individuals who are maybe at a different point in their journey and could use some assistance. So went back and got a second master's degree in family therapy, um, okay. knowing that I really wanted to focus on this, came to the University of Georgia um, because I really wanted to do both ADHD and relationships. Uh -huh. um, and this was a, a wonderful place where they were very willing to kind of let me dabble in both. And actually, a lot of people have a lot of knowledge about ADHD, even if they focus primarily on family relationships here at UGA. Yeah. Okay. And then I got recruited by Megan Ford to do some additional training in financial therapy at the clinic so that we could provide that service to the community. And I was hooked. Um, and I didn't, at the very beginning, I didn't really think about how these things would merge. I just, you know, was willing and was like, okay, yeah. that sounds cool. I'm, I'm interested. Sure. Um, and then the more that I learned about financial therapy, the more I was like, this is exactly what so many of my clients need, you know, like right, there's so right. much difficulty and shame around money. I mean, oh, there's God, a couple yes. conflict around money. Oh and, my God. Yes. Oh boy. I was like, yeah. this is the one thing, like I can talk about sex with couples with ADHD, but like, we don't talk about money. And it's like, because, because that's outside my competency at that time. And so I was like, oh man, I got to interrupt because like, I just love that you named it, and I don't want us to fly past it, but I could talk about couples, sex, and ADHD, and I just, it, that just blew my mind. I love it. Like, I, so I'm uncomfortable, like, as a family, the family therapist in me, like, is still very uncomfortable with human sexuality. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I'm working on it and growing mm -hmm. in it, but like, I'm far from a sex therapist. But I think about the parallels between what happens with couples and their sexuality. And I look for lessons there and see where's the parallels in the finances. But then you add this layer of like, well, what happens for someone's sexuality when they have ADHD and their sexual intimacy? That's, I think that's what you're getting at. Is that fair to say? Well, I work with um, Ari Tuckman, 
uh, as a okay. mentor in some of my ADHD clinical work. And he is both a sex therapist and one of the leading authors on uh, couples with ADHD. So I've learned from him quite a bit. He has a great book called ADHD After Dark for um, specifically about um, sexuality and couples living with ADHD. Um, wow. So, yeah, it's definitely something you could talk about. I had no idea this was even a thing. Like, this is incredible. I mean, I, I love it. It's, you know, this is the Healthy Love and Money podcast. And the focus is primarily like around couple dynamics and money. But the reality is mm-hmm. couple's sexual life easily bleeds over into their financial life too, right? When one area mm-hmm. is not working, it impacts others. So I'm thrilled to discover this. I'm going to be probably ordering this book uh, <laughs> after we hop off. So listeners, ADHD After Dark if, if uh, you're afflicted with ADHD or you know someone that is, this might be a good book for you, it sounds like. Okay, sorry. Back on to our point and where we're going. Where were we going? Um, so you're on this journey. You're at UGA. Mm-hmm. Megan Ford, mm-hmm. for those that aren't listening, Megan Ford is another one of financial therapies. Um, great innovators and contributors. Um, she's also at the University of Georgia and just finished her PhD. So... Um, Okay, so you're having these influences, you're on this journey. Mm-hmm. Keep going. Uh, so here at UGA, I've been, I work in the Couple and Relationship Enrichment Lab. So I do a lot of active research with couples. Um, and I, f- for me, we added in some questions about ADHD, like an abbreviated screener and direct questions uh-huh. about have you been diagnosed? Are you being treated? Um, so yeah. I can really track, I can track a uh, couple functioning. We also have a lot of financial well-being, financial distress, financial self-efficacy, financial management behaviors. Um, wait, we have a lot wait. of questions Christine, that we ask. I'm, I'm going to interrupt again. Financial self-efficacy. When I hear people, when I hear my guests mm. say cool words that I don't know everyone knows, I like to stop them and say, can you give us a, just a simple working definition? What is financial self-efficacy? Hmm. Do I feel like I can engage in the behaviors needed for me to have a strong sense of financial well-being? So it's not really, do I have the money? It's, and it's not, do I know what to do? Do I believe I can do what I know I need to do? So I'm going to use a triangle image. Kind of, there's three Mm -hmm. parts I think I just heard you say is that it's, and different, it's not whether or not I have money, and it's not whether I know right. what to do or not to do. It's assuming I have the money and I know what to do, I feel like I can do what I need to do. Is that financial self-efficacy? Mm-hmm. Or I can, or financial self-efficacy might recognize like, oh, I don't have the money that I need to do what I want to do. I'll be able to go get that money and then do what I know I need to do. Or maybe financial self-efficacy is also like, I can learn what I need to learn to use the money in the way that I want to work. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah, there's a lot of different concepts. Yeah, there's a lot of different concepts. And so some of them are just financial literacy. Some of them are, you know, overall, I feel like I can do the things I need to do. Um, Like I could access emergency funds, right? So those are kind of some higher level type indicators. I think that financial self-efficacy has more to do with um, believing you can engage in the behaviors. Okay, yeah. So positive financial behaviors, can I do it? Do I believe that I have the capacity? I have resources to learn if I need to, like will I engage in this? Yeah, love it. That's cool, that's gonna be the word of the day or at least the word of the podcast. (laughs) 
So, all right. So you're doing the research. You're in the clinic. I'm sorry I keep interrupting. There's just so many cool little nuggets along this trail that you're taking us on. That I want to pick them up and just look at them and observe and get your feedback. Absolutely. Uh, so in addition to my work at the care lab, where I do a lot of quantitative analysis um, and working on papers, um, I also work at the Aspire Clinic at UGA. And so I provide uh, services to Athens and then to throughout the state of Georgia through uh-huh. teletherapy. I focus this past year, I've been able to really um, zero in my practice to focus on individuals, couples, and families living with ADHD or likely ADHD, right? So like mm-hmm. sometimes they'll come to me, they'll they'll seek me out because they think that there's a good chance that they have it. Uh-huh. And so I'll kind of assess and, and find out if this is a fit. And then uh, and also financial therapy services and um, really under the umbrella of, so I think I didn't mention this. So my PhD uh, program at UGA is marriage and family therapy, which is in human development and family science. So I have both this broader family science, human development perspective, yeah. and then I really specialize on the mechanisms of change. Um, uh-huh. So within individuals, within couples, within families, like how do we actually, how do we think that things can change, which is like some of the research side. <laughs> yeah. And then I get to like dig in with clients about like, how do we actually do this? How do we monitor if it's happening? And then how do we sustain change that has been established? So, you know, I, I love analogies. And the most common analogy I go to for this kind of point is like, I think about like physical therapists, right? Like, let's say they're trying to rehab mm-hmm. a knee and they have just, they have a range of different exercises they've learned and practiced and tested that they can measure and know mm-hmm. like your knee strength is getting stronger, but it's like not just the knee. Usually it's the quadricep and the hamstring and the calf and ligaments. And t- I mean, excuse me, physical therapist, I, I'm oversimplifying what you do, but right. I think it also makes it more tangible in the sense of like, that's what we're doing in family therapy is we're studying what types of stretches metaphorically are, actually help strengthen the family unit. Is that what we're talking about? That's what you're looking at is when we move the family left or right, this is what happens. When we move the family this, when we say this, this is what happens, or this is what we think happens, and we test it and find out. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah, I love the physical therapy metaphor. Um, And I think I love that because I feel like people come in with all sorts of different um, tolerances for pain and Uh uh, different emotional stances for kind of how how bought in they are to the process, how uh-huh. um, how much support and encouragement they need versus kind of pushing and prodding. And I also think that the goal of for for any individual client or maybe like a you know like a couple, mm-hmm. their goals are different as well. So you know doing physical therapy for an Olympic athlete, yeah, like their goal is going to be very different from like someone who just wants to be able to, walk with a single cane rather than a walker right right so in that way i think what context matters who is taking into consideration who is the person what are their goals for themselves also sets the the stage and pacing and type and range of exercises right so an olympic athlete may need to rehab their knee and a 60 year old grandma might need to rehab their knee but what they need to have happen could be different for them to get back to life as they would like it to be Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's really where my work um, related to ADHD is particularly important because a lot of the 
efforts to try to work with clients with ADHD assume a certain set of consistent skills uh-huh. or a certain rhythm to the work together that can look really different. And so we, we don't even realize that we kind of have a cookie cutter idea of how change happens until we have a client that you're doing all, you're pulling out like every trick and like you feel like it sticks. And then two weeks later and you're like, what didn't we talk about this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's where my work, um, I love what I get to do, but that's why sometimes the way that I work both in, uh, when I do financial therapy and when I just do like broader ADHD, um, like wife concerns, um, I think it's it's fascinating, it's fun, and a lot of times clients are able to finally see change happen that they have struggled to have happen in previous um, efforts to change. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. I think what you're saying is you're open to seeing multiple different paths for change. So there's not like a prescribed, like we need to go this way. It's, there's a lot of different ways that we can work with change or think about change. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes. I think another big part of it, and this is what I, I talked about in, uh, at the FTA conference in October, I spent a lot of time looking at the invisible barriers associated with neurodiversity and really trying to get an idea of like what the shape of those barriers, shapes are, uh-huh. um, where they are, how to predict when they're going to happen. I have a framework that I use. I use Russell Barkley's um, The Seven Developmental Capacities Associated with Executive Functioning. We call uh-huh. them just executive functions. And, and I really work with clients. So when they, you, you know, clients will come in. And, and I talked with the, you know, at, at FTA, I, I was translating it for a financial planning or financial coaching or counseling environment as well, yeah. because I think a lot of this sort of is, is incredibly applicable to that relationship. Um, they'll come in and they'll say, well, I need help with X, Y, Z. And a lot of times your first step is, okay, what, what have you tried? Mm-hmm. And what happened? How did it go? Where were, what were parts that went well? What were parts that didn't go well? Mm-hmm. And, but part of that questioning process is to really think through the executive functions associated with the steps toward that goal and like where the weak spots are. So okay. for many people, living with ADHD means that you are um, experiencing some impairments related to usually multiple of the seven executive functions. Uh And until you can recognize really which ones they are, it's, it's hard to find solutions that are effective in addressing them. So would you be able to help us know what are these seven? Yes, I would love to. 
So the metaphor that I like to use when I think about executive functions is a Jenga tower. Okay? <laughs> Ooh, I like so it. The, I like it. The, and I, uh, I think most of us have played Jenga. And um, so the bottom level, which is, this is also developmentally, like the order of development. So I'm going to tell you the order of development, just like you're building a Jenga tower. Okay. So they layer on one another. And developmentally for those, uh, this means starting from infancy. What age are we starting from and working? Yes. Uh, we're starting from infancy. The first thing that develops in executive functioning is? Self-awareness. Self-awareness is the first thing. You know, honestly, I'm, I love these interviews because I'm always learning and putting pieces together that I hadn't quite put together. Self-awareness, I had never thought about self-awareness as an executive functioning piece. Mm -hmm. Okay, I like it. Great. Yep. Yep. All right. And that's not an awareness of problems. That's really like the basic, I am hungry. I can move my feet. Look, I can move my hand. Like you see babies kind of start to discover like, oh, wow. Yeah. Right? Like I, I have a self and I can feel what this feels like to be in this body. Um. And of course, none of the the language that we're using as adults to describe it is there, but this is really deep developmental psych work that's been going on for mm -hmm. a long time, right? Is the origin of self starts in infancy and that awareness mm -hmm. of this thing we call itself. Okay. So self-awareness, number one. Yes. What's, what's next? Inhibition. Inhibition. Okay. Help us unpack that just a little bit. And what age does that kind of start coming on? Um, it's a little different for every kid, but you know, when you see like a toddler and you're like, no, stop. And they look at you and they kind of laugh and do it anyway. Oh, and yeah. you know that they're not trying to be disobedient, but it's like, you know, that they can't not take the M&Ms either. Like they're going <laughs> to take the M&Ms that are on the table. Like it's going to happen. Right. 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 Oh, so, yeah. but then later, like there comes a point where they can stop. They can hold they can hold back. They can be like, I know I want the M&Ms. And that's that moment of, it doesn't mean never. It just means that you can stop. You know, something's really clicking for me. That's all that inhibition, ability of the brain to stop yourself from doing something that you're being told not to do is growing and maturing over a, quite a number of years, right? I think about, mm -hmm. you know, I'm raising three boys. I've got a five and a six-year-old right now. And it's like, Man, sometimes they just like to get into each other's stuff. And it's like their ability to inhibit themselves from doing that, which I've told them a gazillion times not to do, it like doesn't it can't work. And it feels like it's falling on deaf ears and it's this ongoing cycle. And it's I think I see your smile, you're like, oh yeah, Ed, right? Like this is part of inhibition. And it's like trying to remember as a parent, they it's they don't even have the developmental capacity to stop themselves fully from doing the thing that they we want them. Like so. They kind of know they're not mm -hmm. supposed to, but it's like, I just can't resist like poking at my brother. Like, I just can't stop myself. I know I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to poke him. And then Absolutely. dad just like flips his lid. Yeah. I love it. I think about the, uh, I mean, this relates to like couples, um, couples work, but you know, those old com commercials about the Staples easy button. Oh yeah. Right. It feels like yeah. sometimes like in the middle of a really heated argument, like there's that staples easy button right between the couple. And you're like, don't, don't mention his mom. Do not mention it. Don't hit it. Don't hit it. And then right. boom, right. went right for you. Just blew it up because it, that inhibition of, 
I know I shouldn't. I know it will never go well. And <laughs> right. I just said it. Yes. Right? I just went there. I think even as adults. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that right. That is part of the therapeutic work sometimes is developing that ability to inhibit the, re mm -hmm. the reactive response, right? And that's, I guess, that part of the development of the executive functioning is regulating or creating the ability to, to inhibit, to stop that which is non-productive for self or other. Um, right. Yeah. And that builds on the self-awareness because if you're not, if you're like, I'm not mad, I'm not mad. And you're, meanwhile, you're raging. Yeah, I'm perfectly logical. I'm perfectly logical. I'm perfectly logical. I'm not angry. Mm, you sound pretty angry to me, mm. right? But that's that, like some of us more so than others, but we'll do that and say, I'm not angry. Even though like this happens in therapy all the time, right? It's like, clearly, like, no, you're clearly angry, but like that self-awareness mm -hmm. piece. So developmental tasks. Okay, so let's go on. What's number three? Number three, so number three and number four relate quite closely. Okay. Um, so number three is nonverbal working memory. And that's really um, like the pictures that we have in our minds. That's uh, being able to think through things uh, without necessarily having a language attached to it. And I, I think that, that is, that's very vague. So when you try to remember back, I don't know, to fifth grade. Yeah. You might kind of be aware that there was a fifth grade, but the nonverbal working memory would be you picturing your school mm -hmm. or your classroom. Yeah. Um, it, and, and so that's like the ability to remember past self and really remember embodying that. Um, mm. And then think about future self. And that really, that really becomes apparent in ADHD because there can often be a gap there. There's research supporting it, but the yeah. ability to sort of fully link past experiences with now and then also link now with future me feels like a bigger leap. It feels less connected. Okay. Um, then I think for neurotypical people and that, so the thing that I will, when I'll talk with financial planners and counselors and coaches is like, you know, if you're trying to talk somebody through like, well, what do you want to do in retirement? And yeah. you're working with someone who's neurodiverse, like that doesn't necessarily translate to pictures in their mind of me as a retired person. Like you think it does. Okay, so yeah, do you have a question oh, yeah. about that one? No, yeah, no. I'm I think this thinking. is the hardest one to understand. No, it, no. I, I think I'm more at the implications of it. Right, is the imagined future mm. self and seeing yourself. And my mm -hmm. wife actually was playing yeah. with one of those funny apps that will age you, and she was showing me her, and I was like, man, mm -hmm. she looks good. I'm like, man, I, I'm lucky. And then she's like, well, let's do you. And she does a picture of me. I'm like, I look like my mom. Oh my God. No. Sorry, mom. I love you, but no. And so it's like, right. But it's oh, like, man. how do we like, yeah, there's such large implications here, whether you're neurodiverse or not, mm -hmm. but for your own financial well being and future financial self is mm -hmm. being able to imagine yourself into the future. And I've been a, 
mm-hmm. planner, fu- super future oriented, but with like seeing my embodied self into the future, I think is more what you're talking about. Like, not just this idea that I'll be sixty some years, but like, add add the person will be there in time and space. That's I think is that kind of what yeah. we're talking about, and that I exist at time and space in fifth grade too. Yeah, that, and that's that connection over time. Uh, so nonverbal working memory is also, you've probably heard maybe uh, folks talk about being time blind. So yeah. the oh. time blindness associated with ADHD sits in that nonverbal working memory. So difficulty, uh. um, difficulty feeling the passage of time. So, you know, your working memory is tracking what's going on in the world. And so, but it's a nonverbal. So are you feeling the passage of time? Are you able to conceptualize the passage of time? Right? So we kind of joke about having now and not now. Okay. And, uh, and so that's where that one sits is on the third Jenga tower. Okay. Um, level. Yeah. yeah. And the next one is, um, which tends to develop, uh, this is all in order. So is verbal working memory. Uh-huh. That's your your lists, being able to remember. I mean, I know if I go to the grocery store and I don't have a list, I've got my three things that I can remember. And sometimes I've got a bonus of number four, but you you can't give me a list of 10. Like it's not happening. I, I guarantee I'm going to get too interested yeah. in checking the prices of this or that. You know, so my verbal sure. working memory, I know, yeah. got a limit. Right. And a lot of times there's that gap between the nonverbal working memory and the verbal working memory. And I definitely see this with couples and money, that one person will be talking about money, throwing um, numbers around, um, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of linking these concepts, and it's all verbal. It's all on the verbal working memory. And then the, the other person is trying to hold all of that all of those words and the numbers, which are supposed to represent quantities. I know that right. sounds basic, but like, it's actually hard for the brain to be thinking about verbal and like quantifying what does this mean? Oh, uh, yeah. One, I'm thinking about the conversation I had with my wife last yeah. night. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. L- lighting mm-hmm. my brain up. Yes, this is. I mean, I don't know that I have ADHD. I don't think that I do, or my wife. But it's still just challenging. So yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, and these are all, um, everybody's got these developmental capacities and nobody's perfect. Um, one of the things that I kind of, I, when I'm thinking about this difference between the verbal and nonverbal working memory, um, which of course relates to retirement planning and some like logistical things. But I remember seeing a post one time about how many kilometers it was between, uh, Alaska and Russia. Okay. Right. And so they were like, it's only however many, I don't remember how many kilometers. And then somebody commented like how many Rhode Islands or football fields is that? Like, I I have no idea what this means. It's not translating to anything. There's no picture here. Right. Yes. That, I mean, that opens up a huge can of worms, right? Is the associations and this, like my other, other experiences, you go and operate in foreign currency and all of a sudden you're in the grocery mm-hmm. store and you have no idea like how many yen. Am I getting ripped off for this banana? I mean, 12,000 yen, that seems like a lot mm-hmm. for a banana. But it's like because we we develop contextual cues and relativeness based on our system of understanding. And that's so that's a whole nother. Mm-hmm. Let's not go down that road because we need to get to five, six and seven. Okay, these ones are quicker because 
Everybody gets these. Five is emotion regulation. We okay. all know what that is. Six is motivation. And seven okay. is planning and problem solving. So pretty quickly what I comes to my mind is financial planning operates at level seven. Mm-hmm. So it does. It assumes that six, five, four, three, two, and one are all working. Which, if That's you're, why it's a any... Jenga tower. <laughs> oh, oh! So extend the metaphor for me a little bit. I have a sense, but tell me about why this is a Jenga tower. So what we usually do is we like to start with um, the top. Because that's yeah. the easiest one to mess with, right? You can pull something out. You can add something on. You can add layers on the top. But if the base yeah. has one stick, you're going down. No plan and problem solving can fix self-awareness and inhibition issues. Oh, Thank you. It's like, I knew it was like, it made sense and it was right under my nose. I'm like, I can't make the connection between why this is like Jenga and now you just made it mind blown. This is awesome. Oh my God. I got to go for a walk after this one. So, you know, my listeners, (laughs) you don't know, but like my work is about getting my brain blown open, like in a good way, in a, in a healthy, productive way, expand it. Maybe I should say expand it. That's a little less, whatever. But one of the ways, so talking about regulation and, and this other mm-hmm. word we haven't talked a lot about is regulation and integration. I have to mm-hmm. go for walks. Walks for me mm-hmm. help me get calm back down in the arousal. It helps me start to reflect and say, wait, what does this mean? How does it apply? So, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling a walk coming on yeah. with this one. But Jenga, executive functioning, as we're kind of going to bring this conversation to close, holy smokes, you have just opened up so much for me and I'm sure for many listeners. So as people are on their journey with ADHD, coupleship and money, what's some Mm -hmm. inspiration, hope, practical resource that you would like to leave folks with? Well, a lot really. I would say like more practical is, um, so I just, a couple weeks ago, I think this is past, but I um, did a guest webinar for an ADHD group called Focused. It's through I Have ADHD, which is the name of the group. And I also next Is that week, a website too? It, it is a website. Um, I Have ADHD. I Have ADHD.com or org. One I of the two. So. Okay. Yeah, I think Google so. it. You'll One figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you'll also next week, my segment that I pre-recorded where I go much more in depth into the Jenga tower, by the way. And I also yes. talk about like how it applies to an example financial situation um, is I have a segment for the ADHD women's Palooza, which you can watch for free if you catch this in time. I think it airs on March 17th or you can um, watch the replay. There's like a paid access where you can watch the replay however many times you want. Um, I'm really, I really am hoping that um, both, you know, those efforts are to the directly to the public. But I really feel like anybody who's interested in this field would find their work to be more effective and and easier um, by starting to develop a fluency in how this works. And um, and I think also it kind of cues up a little bit of compassion. It's hard to feel compassionate when you're working with a client who makes you feel ineffective. So, yes. And what I'm thinking about as we kind of bring this to a close, 
Do you have some sense, what's the prevalence of ADHD in our in the general population ballpark? It's about 5% among adults. Um, okay. Some of the estimates among children are about 9%. It's 44 to 5% are the most recent F estimates that I've seen in the American public. It is worldwide. Um, okay. And there was a big study that came out in the last couple of years addressing the question of is it overdiagnosed, and the answer is no it is largely underdiagnosed. So there's a lot of people who live with these symptoms and don't realize that the symptoms cluster strongly enough that it would be considered ADHD. They usually just feel like yeah. I'm lazy or I'm stupid or flaky. And that's what of, they tell themselves. Of which they are not. And so... Of which they are not. So that was the point of hope that I wanted to say is my experience has been related to ADHD couples and money is that the more open you're willing to be, the more that you find that others really are compassionate and that people connect with it more than you would expect. I think it, it tends to be something that people don't want to lead with. Sure. People don't want to have a stigma or feel like I'm broken or deficient. And I don't think that most people judge as harshly as we fear that they would. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that, right? Because that, that fear of being judged is such a, can be a, a generalization to protect ourselves, understandably, psychological defense mm -hmm. mechanism, right? But the reality is there's probably a lot more people that are compassionate or at least open to being curious. Um, and I think, you know, this mm -hmm. is kind of that two sides of, of the coin is as general citizens, the more that we can learn about how brains work, I think it just is going to mm -hmm. open up compassion, right? So that's, Maybe that's it. It's just we all can stand to continually better understand how brains work, whether we have ADHD or not. There's a good chance that someone in your life has it. And so, like, uh, yeah, right. There's a very high chance that there's someone in your life, whether it's family or work or community that has mm -hmm. it. So if you're able to just continually inform and educate. So anyhow, I'm a huge fan of learning. That's why I do the podcast is I love learning. I support other people on the learning journey. Christine, thank you for the generosity of your time. And I'm so excited for your future and work. And we'll definitely have to have you back as a guest. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love spreading awareness and I appreciate your time too. Awesome. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.